0: I'm excited to share the Word of God with you today. Last week I began a brand new sermon series that I'm so excited about entitled The Kingdom. The Kingdom. We began to talk about a little understood uh, yet uh, an idea that's prominent throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Gospels, the idea of the Kingdom of God. And uh, as we begin today, I want to just do a quick mini-review of our... Uh, message from last week, okay? Can we do that? Real quickly. uh, Review of last week's message, the kingdom. And my monitor in the back is out, so I trust our sound man, he's on the ball. He has it up there. All right. Review from last week. We said, first of all, the primary biblical meaning of the word kingdom is not the realm over which a ruler rules or the people of the realm, but it's of the authority to rule the sovereignty of the king. That's the primary biblical meaning of the word kingdom. Secondly, we said that God's kingdom will be fully consummated in the future age uh, when uh, God uh, destroys all earthly kingdoms and sets up a kingdom that will last forever. But we also said that, that his kingdom has burst into this present age. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we said last week. Thirdly, we said that the church is not the kingdom. Some people identify the church with the kingdom. The church itself is not the kingdom, but it bears witness to the kingdom. That's our task. Fourthly, we said the kingdom has one demand, to receive it. To receive it. We're going to talk more about that in today's message. Fifthly, and finally last week, we ended the message by saying this, and this is so important. Our primary identity should be as citizens of God's kingdom. Not our nationality, not our political persuasion, but as citizens of God's kingdom. That should be our primary identity. The title of my message today is The Mystery of the Kingdom. The Mystery of the Kingdom. How many like a good mystery? A few of us. I do. A good whodunit, right? Well, the biblical concept of a mystery is a bit different than our understanding of the word mystery. In the scriptures, uh, a mystery is not something that we think of as deep, dark, or spooky, or something we think of as, you know, mysterious in modern terms. In scripture, mystery is a technical term for something which has been kept secret through the ages, but is now disclosed. Something which has been kept secret through the ages, but is now disclosed. It refers to a divine purpose of God from eternity that has been kept hidden from men, but is now revealed. The Apostle Paul talked about this mystery in Romans 16, 25 and 26. He said, now to him who was able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey Him to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, what is the mystery of the kingdom? By the way, this message, I said last week's message was a bit unusual. Today's message will be a bit unusual in a different way. Usually the introduction is a little short uh, segment at the beginning, and the body of the message is longer, right, Brother Warren? That's usually how we do it, uh, but the introduction is going to be longer today, and hopefully the body of the message will be a little shorter, so you might make lunch. I, I, I would be optimistic, okay? What is the mystery of the kingdom? Well, I want to look first at some background, the Old Testament perspective on the kingdom of God. And we find in Daniel chapter two, now some of you who uh, did our chronicle study, we just uh, talked about Daniel uh, about two or three weeks ago in our Wednesday night Facebook Live study. In Daniel chapter two, Daniel is one of the many Jewish exiles who's been exiled to the land of Babylon. And in Daniel two, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has a vision. And in his vision, he saw a large statue with a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And in this vision, he saw a large rock, and it specifically says it was not cut by human hands, a large rock that strikes and smashes the feet of the statue and then pulverizes the entire statue. In Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream in verses 36 through 39, we find that the parts of this statue represent successive earthly kingdoms. The Babylonian Empire, which was present during Daniel's time, and then future to that, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and finally, the end time successors to the Roman Empire, symbolized by the the toes of iron and clay. In verse 44 of Daniel 2, Daniel states that the rock that destroys the statue is a kingdom established by Almighty God that will last forever. So the Old Testament perspective is to envision a day when God's, God's kingdom rule will uh, become absolute and will sweep away all earthly kingdoms. We're looking forward to that day, aren't we? It's still future. It hasn't come yet. We said last week that the consummation of God's kingdom will be in the future. It will sweep away all earthly kingdoms. So that, from Daniel 2, that was the Old Testament perspective. Now I want to shift forward to the New Testament. And there are two aspects to the mystery of the kingdom that we find revealed in the New Testament. The first is this, is that it was a different kind of kingdom. John the Baptist, remember him? He was the forerunner of of Jesus Christ. He announced Christ's coming as the Messiah who would usher in God's eternal kingdom. But in Matthew chapter 11, we find John in prison. And John sends word to Jesus saying, are you the promised one who is to come? In other words, the Messiah that I've been preaching about, or should we expect another? Now, this might seem odd, Right? John was called of God. John was the powerful forerunner of Jesus. He said, prepare the way of the Lord. And yet he asked Jesus, are you the one? Uh, What was the reason for this? Well, because John had that Old Testament perspective. When the kingdom of God comes, it's going to sweep away earthly kingdoms and set up an eternal kingdom. And he looked at what Jesus was doing and he didn't see that. The evil Rome was still very much in power. So John was a bit confused, so he asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Jesus replied that yes, he was the promised Messiah who was healing the sick, raising the dead, and preaching good news to the poor, all in fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, and there are many. So the first part of the mystery of the kingdom is the previously undisclosed truth that Jesus the Messiah would bring the kingdom rule of God not by attacking earthly kingdoms, but by attacking Satan's kingdom. And that's precisely what Jesus did. That's why he referred to the miracles, the people who were healed, uh, the the blind eyes who were opened, the mute lips that were loosened, the dead who were raised, the good news being preached to the poor. The the undisclosed secret, the first part of it, uh, or mystery of the kingdom of God, Matthew uses the phrase king of heaven, same thing. It was that earthly kingdoms would not yet be destroyed, but Satan's kingdom would be attacked by the works of the kingdom of God. And Jesus ushered that in. But there's a second part to the mystery of the kingdom. It has to do with the reception of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, some of which we're going to read from in just a few moments, And in its parallel passage in Mark 4, Jesus tells a series of parables to describe this kingdom he's ushering in. What's a parable? I'm glad you asked. A parable is not an allegory. An allegory is a made-up story, and every detail in an allegory has specific meaning. A parable is a story taken from everyday life and is used to illustrate one principle. One principle. Jesus used parables very skillfully. In Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17, right in the middle of a parable we're going to look at, the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables. His answer was very revealing. He said he did so uh, to test the hearts of the hearers the hard-hearted, spiritually dull hearers would miss the point of the parable altogether. But those with open hearts, which are sensitive to spiritual things, would understand the point of the parable and receive its instruction. So, receptivity, or lack thereof, of these parables of the kingdom highlight Uh, The second aspect of the formerly hidden mystery about the kingdom, and it's this. We referred to it last week. The kingdom rule of God can be received or rejected. Can be received or rejected. So two parts of the mystery. It would uh, invade Satan's kingdom and attack it, and it it could be received or rejected. Okay, are you with me? Now... We're getting to the heart of the message. Jesus told a parable here in Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9 and verses 8 through 23. Let's read that together. We have it on the screen for you. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the roots were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then skipping to verse 18, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who receives the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Jesus makes it clear from the latter part of that passage, his interpretation of his own parable, that the condition of one's heart, represented here by a type of soil, is the determining factor of whether or not God's kingdom rule penetrates and takes root within a person. The condition of the heart is the determining factor of whether the kingdom rule takes root. Since we, as the church, are called to bear witness to God's kingdom, we must understand the types of hearts to which we bring that message and their responses to that message. We can also take a close look at our own hearts this morning. So, for the next few minutes, I want to answer the question, what are the responses of the four types of hearts to the message of God's kingdom rule? The first is this. It's that hard hearts reject the kingdom. It's a a difficult truth, but it's it's a truth. Hard hearts reject the kingdom. The path where some of the seed fell and the birds ate it represent hard hearts. These are people whose minds are closed to spiritual things. Someone described them as having, quote, gospel deafness. The gospel makes no sense to them. Jesus said Satan comes and snatches the word from their hearts. Uh, People with hard hearts dismiss the message of the kingdom, the word of God, out of hand without giving it any consideration. Have you ever met any people like that with hard hearts? I believe we all have. A man named Ronald Knox said that the greatest human tragedy is not a broken heart, but a hard heart. I believe that's true this morning. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I sat in a hospital room by the bedside of a dying man who had never professed faith in Jesus Christ. Richard was with me. His daughter and son-in-law were born-again Christians, and he would visit our church periodically to see his grandchildren in Easter plays or Christmas programs. He was never hostile to me or other church people. He was a very nice pleasant man. He had heard the gospel on a number of occasions, but never received Christ. And in that hospital room, when I asked him if he wanted to receive Christ before he died, he said this. He said, I'm content with the choices I've made. That still chills me to the bone to this very day. A man with nothing to lose, on his deathbed and everything to gain, rejected Jesus. That's a hard heart. If you're here today and I take nothing for granted or watching online, our videos are saved online, someone might be watching this at some point. If you're hearing this and you have rejected the call of Jesus to your heart, I urge you today, I plead with you. I'm not in the habit of begging, but I. I beg you to soften your heart. Consider the loving invitation Jesus gives to you. Receive him today. Don't go into eternity without Christ because of a hard heart. Receive him today. Hard hearts reject the kingdom. The second uh, response we see here is that superficial hearts give up during tough times. Superficial hearts give up during tough times. Some of the seed in Jesus' parable fell on shallow soil. The ground was rocky underneath, which prevented the seedlings from developing deep, strong roots. So when the hot weather came, the seedlings shriveled and died. Jesus likened this to those who received the kingdom with joy, and they actually began to grow somewhat. But because they never become deeply rooted in Christ in his word, they give up when trouble or persecution arises. Someone has labeled this kind of spiritual experience as easy believism. These types of believers often don't fellowship regularly with other believers and or they might not read the Word and spend time regularly in prayer. They generally don't really do much to deepen their relationship with God. They don't grow spiritually and they don't produce any spiritual fruit. But boy, they love the good times. They love the worship. They love the fellowship. They love the joyful celebration. Who doesn't love that? But because these types of uh, individuals do not put their roots deeply down into Christ, they can't stand it when the heat arises. As long as times are good, they're good. But when hard times come, their faith withers. George Whitfield, who was the passionate and powerful preacher of the First Great Awakening, used to preach to massive crowds numbering in the thousands and many people responded to his evangelistic message. When he was asked how many people were saved in a particular service, he replied, we'll see in a few years. The point, of course, is not that God can't save in an instant or that we must earn our salvation. No, far from it. But the point is that a real salvation experience should lead to a mature faith that can endure the toughest of times. If this description of a superficial heart sounds like you today, you need to understand that hard times will come to test your faith. How many know that's true? They're going to test your faith to the very max. It's not a question of if, but when, and how often. So sink your roots deep into Christ through regular prayer. Reading of God's word regularly, not not just when you're in a crisis, but as your spiritual daily nourishment. Uh, Sink your spiritual roots into fellowship with other believers. Get involved in doing ministry. How many know we grow when we use our gifts and do ministry for the kingdom of God? So all these things, Christian fellowship, the word, prayer, um, prayer, doing ministry they help us to become rooted and when the heat comes when the tough time comes and what yes when even persecution comes how many know that's a thing when those things come you can be strong and not wither under the heat of tough times Don't let difficulties cause you to give up. Sink your roots down deep. Don't be a superficial hearer of the gospel. What's the third response? It's that divided hearts become distracted by earthly things. Divided hearts become distracted by earthly things. The next type of soil Jesus talked about was soil that was full of thorns. How many have thorns in your backyard? Wonderful, aren't they? These seeds also began to grow in this thorny ground, but eventually the thorns choke the life out of the young plants. And it's a fact that thorns will rob seedlings of nutrients and the plants will die. Jesus likened the thorny soil to those who receive the message of the kingdom and begin to grow, but he said, quote, the worries of life And quote, the deceitfulness of wealth choked the spiritual life out of them. This is the divided heart. What is the deceitfulness of wealth? It's the lie, listen to me, the deceitfulness of wealth is the lie that an accumulation of wealth brings fulfillment. The word of God has a lot to say about serving God wholeheartedly. Matter of fact, Jesus said you can't serve God and money at the same time. You're going to either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. Someone once said, there's nothing wrong with having money, but money shouldn't have you. How true that is. Paul talked about the evils of the love of money. But it doesn't have to be money that distracts us. It can be what Jesus called the worries of life. You say, what fits under that? Well, any earthly thing that prevents you or me from serving God wholeheartedly. Emphasis on our career, time, robbing, pursuits. You fill in the blanks. The divided heart. The divided heart becomes distracted by earthly things. I heard about a Central Florida conservation group which was incubating milk snake eggs. I didn't know there was such a thing as milk snake eggs, but there are. They discovered one milk snake egg with two heads. It had one body, but about three inches uh, from the front end, the snake branched into two heads. Biologist Daniel Parker said the snake had two brains, which commanded a single body. They would not release it into the wild because Parker said the snake would have a difficult time surviving. You think? (laughs) With independent brains, he said, the snake would have an argument with itself over every possible decision. If they disagreed and tried to go different ways while still going forward, the fork between the heads could become stuck on a branch. Trying to coordinate on the proper time to attack prey could be another difficulty causing an inability to catch dinner. If one of the heads did catch a bird or a frog, there could be a fight over which head would get to swallow it. Although both throats lead to the same stomach. This is weird, I know. It would just be uh, difficult to live with two minds in one body. Can, can, Can we agree on that? Similarly this morning, when we say we want to follow Jesus but allow ourselves to be distracted by earthly things, we are one being who is of two minds. And eventually, those distractions will choke the spiritual life out of us. I've seen it happen, church. Is your heart divided today? Are earthly things distracting from you following God wholeheartedly? If so, check your priorities. Curtail or remove whatever is stunting your spiritual development. Pastor Tim, that sounds harsh. Well, I think it sounds necessary if we're distracted. Curtail or remove whatever is stunting your spiritual development. That means saying no to some things your flesh would like to say yes to. Pastor Tim, you're talking about sin. No, I'm not. I'm not talking about, yes, of course we say no to sin. But I'm talking about things that aren't necessarily sin, but we need to say no to. Why? Because they're a distraction. And, 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 and here's the rub. Uh, it could be something another believer could say yes to because for them it's not a distraction. But for you, it might be. Do, do we get this this morning? We need to reprioritize. We need to put Jesus first. Don't try to follow Jesus with a divided heart. It will stunt your spiritual growth. The divided heart becomes distracted by earthly things. What's the fourth response to the message of the kingdom? It's this. Fruitful hearts are receptive and productive. The soil that produced a bountiful harvest is the only soil Jesus called good. This is the fruitful heart. It receives the message of the kingdom and bears fruit as much as hundred, sixty, or 30 fold. What does this mean? It means that we all have varying degrees of potential. We understand that? What is produced as God works through my life may vary from what is produced as God works through your life. It may be different. But the point is that the fruitful heart uh, produces up to its maximum potential. See, that's the point. That's the thing we have to ask ourselves. Am I the fruitful heart? Am I producing up to my maximum potential? And what is the fruit? Some say it's leading new converts to Jesus. And while that certainly is an example of fruitfulness, fruitfulness involves more than that. It includes displaying the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, and 23. You know, love, joy, peace, patience. That's a hard one, isn't it? Patience, etc. Displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Our good works done in Jesus' name. Using our spiritual gifts to serve God's kingdom. Displaying spiritual maturity which enables us to mature other believers. All these are evidence of the fruitful heart. We're producing something. The very word fruit speaks of production. Someone said we either use resources or create resources. We're a producer. A fruitful heart is a producer. A poll by the Barna organization a few years back found that 45% of Americans claim to have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. But many church leaders find the results confusing. They say that if nearly half of all Americans were living the reality of what they profess, truly transforming Christian lives, divorce rates, teen pregnancy rates, and other social ills, such as alcoholism and drug addiction, would be impacted more. In other words, if nearly half of the nation uh, was a committed believer, there would be more fruit. Someone once said that a fruitless Christian is an oxymoron. I'll let you think about that. Think about that. By contrast, in his book, The God Who Knows Your Name, Max Lucado, I I love Max Lucado, he writes this. He said this, the father tends, Jesus nourishes, we receive and grapes appear. Passers-by, stunned at the overflowing baskets of love, grace, and peace, can't help but ask, who runs this vineyard? And God is honored. For this reason, fruit-bearing matters to God. It matters to God. If you believe you have a fruitful heart, let me encourage you this morning to keep sowing seed Allow the Lord to produce the maximum harvest in your life for His kingdom in the lives of those around you. Hear me this morning, whether you're here in the sanctuary or you're joining us online, you may have rebellious children, a hard-hearted spouse, friends and co-workers apathetic to the gospel. And so you may keep sowing seed and you may look at results sometimes and become discouraged. I'm here to tell you, don't give up! Keep sowing! Keep sowing! bringing the message of the kingdom that God wants to transform lives. Keep doing what you know to do and leave the results to God and your life will be fruitful as God would have it to be fruitful. Amen? Amen. Church, we can't give up. We need to keep sowing the seed. Keep being fruitful for Almighty God. Hallelujah. In conclusion this morning, to recap, we talked about the two aspects of the mystery of the kingdom. Let's go ahead and put those on the board. The first was that in this present age, the kingdom rule of God is advancing by attacking Satan's kingdom, not earthly kingdoms. The day when earthly kingdoms will be destroyed and the eternal kingdom of God set up, that's still in the future. That's the latter part of Daniel's interpretation of uh, of the dream. But in this present age, the kingdom of God is attacking the kingdom of Satan. The second aspect of the mystery of the kingdom, we said, was this. The kingdom rule of God can be received or rejected. It all depends on the condition of the heart. And what did we learn from the parable of the sower and the soils? We said that hard hearts reject the kingdom of God. Don't let your heart be hard. Don't let your heart be hard. Pray that God softens your heart. Secondly, we said superficial hearts give up during tough times. We need to sink our roots deep down into Christ and his word. We need to be in fellowship with believers. We we need to develop strong roots. Those tough times will come. The heat will come. But if we're rooted and strengthened in Christ, our faith won't wither during tough times. Amen? We said that divided hearts become distracted by earthly things. What is there in your life right now that's screaming for your attention? We said it doesn't necessarily have to be sinful. It could just be a distraction, it could be a hindrance, it could take up too much of your time, too much of your attention, too much of your finances, too much of your energy. Let's not have divided hearts. Let's prioritize. Let's put the kingdom of God first. As we, scripture we read at the very beginning of the service, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Let's not have divided hearts. We also said that fruitful hearts are receptive and productive. You know, there are parts of the word of God that I don't like to hear. Anybody with me? When they correct me? When they, when they a, a verse I've read, uh, you know, a hundred times, when I read it and it cuts me to the heart, it convicts me out of something in my life. Boy, I don't like that. I don't suspect you do either. I don't like it, but I need it. Because I want to have a fruitful heart. I want to be receptive to the Word of God. And I want to produce fruit. I want to impact lives around me. How about you? Fruitful mm-hmm. hearts are receptive and productive. As I close... I just want to share this one uh, illustration. During the Nazi occupation of Europe in World War II, there was an underground resistance that would work against the Nazis, doing all it could to disrupt uh, disrupt their war effort. They would just do everything they could. You've you've probably heard about it if if you're a student of history. And this resistance was kept alive by one hope the rumored allied invasion that would come it eventually did come on december 6 1944 liberating beginning the liberation of europe they they would keep opposing the nazi war effort why because deliverance is coming because the allies are going to invade similarly hear me hear me church similarly while it sometimes seems that satan's kingdom rules unopposed Doesn't it seem like that sometimes? When it sometimes seems that Satan's kingdom rules unopposed, we need to understand we are the resistance. Hallelujah. Sustained by the hope. That our Lord will return one day. He's going to split the eastern sky. He's going to come back for all that are His. Hallelujah. He's going to set up His final kingdom. The Word of God says every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Hallelujah. It's going to happen, church. He's coming back. He's going to set up His eternal kingdom. But in the meantime, we're the resistance. We need to attack Satan's kingdom everywhere and every way we can for the glory of God. Hallelujah. That's why we need to move. That's why we need the power of God to flow. We need to be energized. This is the energizing room. This is the charging station where we go out of this room. We go out to attack the kingdom of the enemy. Hallelujah. For the glory of God to produce fruit uh, for the name of Jesus Christ because the kingdom of God uh, has invaded this present age. And we are agents of that resistance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God.